welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living? Make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. Welcome back, everybody. This is Michael Bernard, your host of Clean Technica's Clean Tech Talks. I'm here with Anna Zieletsky and Brent Doberstein. Um, they're both with the University of Waterloo, oddly enough, because University of Waterloo has become a clear focus area for a particular area of study, which is climate change adaptation. What do we do with the reality of climate change? Uh, Anna is Director of Partners for Action and the Adjunct Professor at the University of Waterloo, and she leads a network of collaborators from academia, government, private sector, and non-governmental organizations who are committed to advancing Canadian flood resiliency in a changing climate. Brent is with the Interdisciplinary Centre on Climate Change, um, another professor, prof uh, Geography and Environmental Management. Now, his focus has been dealing on with the impacts of climate change, especially the need for planned retreat. I know them because Brent and I worked on something for Natural Resources Canada um, to help bring leading practices from around the world to the Canadian context for planned retreat, and Anna was on the advisory panel. But I thought we'd get together and talk about more accommodation than not. Anna, Brent, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much, Michael, for having me. So um, let's just start out easily, um, you, know, uh, you know, ease into the conversation. Anna, why don't you tell us about your most recent areas of research and focus? Thanks, Michael. So Partners for Action, um, which, uh, which was founded in uh, 2015, we've been around for a few years now, about five years. We were founded by the Cooperators Group and Farm Mutual, which are two reinsurance companies here in Canada that had a real interest in advancing flood resiliency. Um, you know, when we came together, I think one of the one of the issues that was you know worth exploring and that we have been exploring for the past five years really is, is looking at Canadians' awareness of flood risk. So we've done several projects on understanding you know how 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 in tune are Canadians with really the flooding issue um, and climate change, um, and what are they doing about it to uh, prevent prevent flooding you know at the lot level. Uh, having an understanding of what flood risk looks like within the community itself. And the other um, sort of that work uh, certainly has led us to um, doing, um, you know, significant surveys around Canadians' understanding of flood risk. So really wanting to hear from Canadians. You know, there's a lot of research around, um, you know, at the policy level, what should be done. And there, there is 
there are many messages to Canadians around what they have to do to, to improve their flood risk at the property level and reduce their financial risks around flooding. But we, we don't hear a lot from what Canadians think about the way in which we're managing flood risk in Canada. So that could be everything from um, our investments in flood mapping to, to managed retreats. So we've just recently completed a national survey um, of 2,500 Canadians living in designated flood risk areas and asked them a series of questions around um, you know, you know everything from what they what the actions they're taking to um, what they think about property buyouts and under what circumstances they would accept a property buyout, which is of course one way in which to enable managed retreat. Um, and so, so we we um, so we we've just redid this survey after after doing it again. Uh, excuse me, after doing it previously in 2016. So we've just we recompleted the survey to sort of see where Canadians are now and how have things changed. Um, you know, connected to that, we are also working on, um, at the moment, is an ongoing project for us, uh, work around managed retreat property buyouts. And specifically what we're looking at is, uh, in Canada, what can we learn from other jurisdictions, such as in the United States and around the world, about how to make these programs effective? And, and what I mean by effective is, how, how do we make them socially acceptable? How can we optimize um, social acceptability, political viability, and the economic efficiency of these programs so that we can do more of them, essentially? Because what we have found uh, in our research to date so far is there are probably less than 100 programs in Canada, whereas in the United States, you know, we're looking at probably over 1,000. So it's not, uh, obviously the flood challenges between these two countries are very different, but there are many cases in Canada where I think the tolerance for uh, continuing as we are and rebuilding um, is 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 lessening. So we need to sort of take a look at that. So so we're really focused on uh, continuing to advance uh, research in, in uh, at the moment in these two areas. Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to effective bias, bias and social acceptance. But I thought I'd give Brent a chance to say a few words. Um, you know, Brent, what, what what's your current area of focus? Sure. Um, so I would say in general, my research program is focusing on the links between natural hazards, um, climate change and disaster risk reduction, broadly defined. And I, I have some projects that are in developing countries and other projects that are here in Canada. Um, but most recently, I've been involved in several projects looking at managed retreat, um, as Anna mentioned. Um, we seem to be um, carrying out some parallel research that is really complementary. And um, I've, I've been looking at some case studies of communities affected by flooding where managed retreat is at least on the table as a discussion point and in some cases is actively being used um, to deal with the flood risk. So, for example, point Point Gatineau, Quebec. Um, there are multiple property owners there who have been uh, offered buyouts and have taken buyouts and have already moved and their houses have been demolished. Um, we're also doing some research in Western Canada, in British Columbia and Alberta, where they're also um, employing managed retreat for flood affected communities. Um, maybe stepping back from the managed retreat discussion, um, more broadly, I'm, I'm interested in all elements of disaster risk reduction, and so we, um, we were approached to prepare a study looking broadly at Canadian um, community approaches to flood risk reduction and risk reduction in general, 
And we started with a, a framework that we've, we've just um, called the PARA framework. And it's, it's a framework that the IPCC has popularized over the years. So we, we just borrowed it and, uh, and turned it into an acronym. That's our, our main contribution. Um, so PARA stands for protect, accommodate, retreat, or avoid. And we really see that framework as providing um, kind of a, a, a suite of options for developing resilience to natural hazards like flooding. So, you know, whereas one community might decide to invest heavily in protect options like dikes or seawalls, um, another community might in, invest more heavily in retreat and managed retreat and buyout options. And I think the majority of communities would look at um, all of those, those options, protect, accommodate, retreat, and avoid, and you really use that as an integrated framework um, to choose, you know, what will be the plan going forward. Um, so at, at the start of the, our discussion here, you mentioned um, work with Natural Resources Canada. And, and there, that work was, was really looking forward towards Canadian futures and climate change in Canada. And um, how can we um, at least consider retreat for some communities that are being affected by climate change related hazards. So those are just a few of the elements um, that I'm currently involved in. And I've got some graduate students that are um, trying to get into the field during a pandemic. That's been quite a challenge. Yeah, the, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about this because, you know, one of the things that emerged for us very clearly was the concept of overlapping disasters, whether it was, you know, the fires followed by floods in Australia or as we experience now, flooding and fire and heat waves in the middle of a pandemic when emergency shelters are contraindicated. Um, you know, Anna or Brent, have you been dealing much with the, the concept of retreat or accommodation around uh, wildfire because that's top of mind right now? Uh, well, maybe I could just uh, add a comment there. Um, maybe one of the communities that I'm most familiar with that's dealing with multiple hazards is um, Fort McMurray. Of course, they were affected in 2016 by devastating wildfires that really resulted in the displacement of the majority of that community. Um, certainly some, some, some homes survived the wildfire, but uh, there was a significant displacement. And uh, of course, there's the reconstruction following that wildfire disaster. And then fast forward to 2020, and parts of Fort McMurray are now dealing with flooding. And the Alberta government has gone on record as saying um, this is likely to lead to retreat for some parts of the community where the homes that were flooded will be bought up and uh, demolished and, and perhaps turned into community green space. And then we have to layer over top of that the pandemic, as you said, um, you know, evacuation centers for people who have been flooded out in 2020 in Fort McMurray um, are, are really um, just not a solution during a pandemic. So that has certainly layered on some problems for Fort McMurray. Yeah, and we, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the health implications because, you know, um, you guys deal with uh, the implications of mold and mildew related to flooding events as well as sewer backup, which has respiratory and heart-lung concerns. Then we have the smoke from the wildfires, which has heart-lung concerns. And then we have COVID, which has 
heart-lung concerns. Um, and something we hadn't talked about, and Anna, Brent, maybe you guys can uh, share more with that. How much of an impact has there been on health from flooding events um, related to mold and mildew buildup? Um, or is that just a concern that I have in my head? I think that's always a concern um, in every flooding event and even uh, flooding generally in a community because, uh, you know, one of the things that the emergency managers that I talk to, one of the first things they always say is that they have the hardest time teaching people not to go into floodwaters, drive through floodwaters or swim in floodwaters, especially young people. So, I mean, this this is a real concern because of the lack of knowledge, I think, around what's actually in the water. Um, and so uh, I think it's always a concern. I think um, first responders are, um, you know, it's top of mind for first responders. Um, and and, in, in, and I think it's reflected certainly in, in some of the resources and materials and education that, that are put out around how to, how to recover from a flood and what to do, you know, when to go back and, and what you should not do and, and uh, the sort of protocols that you should implement around health and safety once you reenter your home. So I think, uh, you know, for example, not you know, making sure to wash your hands, making sure to wear gloves, um, washing everything. So um, these are, there, there is, I think, a, a real risk for that. But when it comes to COVID, I think I, I just wanted to just pivot for a second. So COVID has certainly been very interesting for flooding in, in, in communities across Canada. And Brett used a really great example about Fort McMurray. So they, you know, I think that, that was one that came to my mind as well. But, you know, in that, you know, they, they were dealing with flooding and, after the fire and now flooding again this year, a significant flooding event in early 2020, um, which has caused, you know, I think something like 13,000 people had to be evacuated from, from, from that community again, where there's obviously some um, disaster fatigue after the last uh, four or five years in Fort McMurray. But can, there are, you know, examples of communities in Canada that have had to adapt because of COVID. So how they're responding to significant flooding you know, uh, First Nations communities in Northern Ontario, um, you know, weren't able to relocate to obviously the areas that they, you know, typically would go in Southern Ontario and so had to relocate in more, um, you know, more remote areas, which may or may not be great. But I mean, because of COVID, there are obviously physical distancing requirements in place uh, that have limited, limited, uh, you know, how many people can gather in other communities, uh, provincial officials in Ontario here in Canada and in BC have had to adjust their protocols to everything from how many people can be together sandbagging um, and, and, uh, and obviously people in a, in a space and the added uh, sanitizing procedures that have had to put in place into their procedures, which has really slowed things down. Um, so it's, it's, it's really been uh, an interesting, I think, I think, I think it's been a really interesting example of how, how can, how a country has had to deal with uh, overlapping disasters. And, and of course there, there will be, there will be more. So, um, and it just, it's just, a, it's, uh, it's been a challenge, I think, but, but from what, from what we have seen, you know, the, the adaptation to, to this, to this pandemic has been fairly um, uh, swift, I think, in, in, in doing so and responding in this way. Yeah, and uh, Anna, I'm not sure you know, I know Brent does, but uh, one of my backgrounds is in public health, communicable disease, and outbreak management. I helped build the um, most sophisticated solution for that in the world in uh, British Columbia a few years ago. It's used across Canada. It's being used to manage uh, COVID-19. It's used in um, the Middle East as well. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I, as I'm dealing right now with um, a startup I'm engaged with, which is, you know, dealing with return to work around COVID, one of the 
things that I'm observing in terms of talking to the epidemiologists and public health experts that I know, uh, including Patrick Brent, um, is the, um, you know, the, that air pollution increases the risks of COVID-19 long-term damage and death. You know, any, any, it's a comorbidity factor and a, um, uh, you know, a factor which increases the damage of COVID-19. So wildfire and mold both have implications. So flooding and wildfires both have implications for survivability. Uh, are you guys just, because this is a, a top of mind thing, are you, are you two seeing in your discussions with experts around Canada and around the world, um, a greater awareness of the need for retreat because of these overlapping disasters, especially COVID-19? Is it, is it turning yet into greater action for movement? I think um, I personally noticed greater acceptance of planned retreat or managed retreat um, about five years ago, and it, or, or actually seven years ago now, after Hurricane Sandy in the United States. And I think the conversation turned away from the rights of individuals to not uh, be forced to move toward um, perhaps the, the economic and cost-benefit analysis where retreat might actually be the cheapest option. And so I, I think part of the, accept, the greater acceptance of retreat has been the recognition that it, long-term, it may be the cheapest option for dealing with these ongoing hazards and risks, um, which may even uh, accentuate in the future under climate change. And it's, it's really not society's role to continue to um, bail out or compensate or assist people to rebuild in locations that are at severe risk from future hazards. So I'm not sure COVID-19 has really um, had much of an impact on the retreat discussion. I, I personally haven't seen that, but I think it's this broader discussion about what to do about risks that aren't going away and may be coming worse in the future. And um, having a sense of efficiency or economic responsibility around decision-making there. Um, but I'm not, Anna, I don't know if you've seen anything different around that discussion. Uh, I think I would agree with you, Brent. So I mean, I I think I think there is a, there's a sentiment that has certainly been expressed by um, political officials in Canada recently. And when I say recently, I, I think in you know the last year or so, where where uh, political officials certainly at the federal and in some cases provincial levels have started to talk about it more and talk about you know using language such as not being not wanting to go back to taxpayers to to, to rebuild and to uh, over and over again and, and so what we, and we do know that the federal government here in Canada is looking at um, developing a national action strategy uh, for retreat um, to uh, to apply to homes that are you know at, at greatest risk so there there is discussion I think at some of those levels um, we, in our survey, I'll just I'll just add that uh, when we when we talked to Canadians this year, when we did the latest survey that I mentioned, the national survey, something like uh, it was forty nine percent or half of half of those people that we surveyed um, uh, supported uh, managed retreat, specifically property buyouts um, uh, for homes that are uh, at greatest risk of flooding. So those located in designated flood risk areas. So um, that's the sort of latest data I have on 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 that. Yeah, that's certainly getting better. Uh, one of the reasons I was leaning into this, I, I think it was A.R. Siders we were talking to, Brent, and we were talking about 
um, the concept of um, that worked well in the aftermath of Sandy regarding um, leaning into the concept of making sacrifices for your, the better good of your, of the greater whole making sacrifices for community. So framing it in the context of making a personal choice, which is inconvenient and disruptive, but for everybody else's good. And she framed that with, um, you know, a, a community that was, you know, a very red state community in New Jersey. And she found broad acceptance by framing it in context of the sacrifices in World War II, for example, um, and the choices that communities made to, you know, suffer deprivation in order to advance a better effort. And so, you know, at the time we were, we were, we were starting to have an inkling that perhaps COVID-19 could be leveraged that way, but I, it sounds like we're still too early and then in the midst of COVID-19 to be able to lean into that. Yeah, I, well, I wonder if COVID-19 has just kind of put these other issues a little bit on the back burner. I mean, we have to deal with uh, an unfolding pandemic. There, there's really no way around that. And so, you know, a national action plan on retreat maybe gets bumped down the list of priorities a little bit. Um, but it, yeah, it's really interesting that uh, that you mentioned the the psychology surrounding acceptance of something like retreat and how a personal sacrifice, um, somebody deciding to sell their house to the government and have their house demolished, um, that's very clearly a, a personal sacrifice. But that can be seen as more acceptable if there's a broader good, a community good that um, retreat will, will actually fulfill. And so if you turn the former um, housing settlement into green space or spaces that are available to, to serve as floodplain for future floods, or maybe if you put up some sort of a commemorative plaque talking about the previous community that was here and gave up their homes for, for community betterment, that seems to make quite a difference to individuals. And, and we're really talking about this at the individual level for decision-making. Um, you know, do I stay? Do I leave? Do I accept a buyout? Oh, well, if I accept the buyout, this is actually helping my community. So I think that in, in some ways that actually tips the balance for some people and turns retreat into a more positive uh, sacrifice. Yeah, the, um, you know, certainly when we were talking about things about the cognitive science, you know, the, there are two or three factors. Um, nobody wanted to give up their home if somebody else was going to be able to take advantage of the property. Uh -huh. um, the negative aspect of speculators making money off of that or developers making money off of that. But then the secondary level of that, that um, personal sacrifice for the greater good seems to strongly resonate. You know, I've been um, reading through a bunch of um, additional research in terms of social uh, collaboration and how, you know, much of the social Darwinism is just so absolutely wrong simply because sociologically we are designed to, work for the better of the group that we're with. Um, so it's really interesting in that regard. Um, let's, instead of, we've been talking a lot about retreat, um, but let's talk about staying in place in floodplains and what the heck we do with, about that. Because I know both of you are, are strongly focused on that. And Anna, I think you've got some very specific, interesting little uh, tidbits. So Anna, why don't you lean into, what are all the things that you're seeing that are uh, being done and that are starting to look really interesting in terms of staying in place and accommodating regular flooding. 
Well, I'd like to think that we're, you know, here in Canada doing some really interesting and exciting things, but I think like, you know, others elsewhere, we're, we are struggling with, with adapting uh, to staying in place. Um, you know, maybe perhaps you've had conversations about this in other uh, contexts, but, you know, here at the University of Waterloo and, and likely elsewhere, there are there is some research on, um, uh, you know, homes that can sort of move with the water, in, so to speak. But I'm not I'm not even sure that, you know, some of these types of trend, um, really innovative, I will use the word innovative sort of approaches are um are ones that we could apply to, you know, and in fact, I should take a step back and say, I don't think there's any sort of blanket approach to dealing with this anywhere. It really is, you know, for communities that, you know, are experiencing flooding and repeated flooding, we really need to look at what are the, what is happening in those communities? What is, what is the characteristic of that community? Um, what, what, what are some of the structural things that can be done in the community and, and sort of the non-typical approaches such as, uh, natural infrastructure that can help sort of help the community mitigate flooding and reduce the risk of flooding. You know, I think we need, we need to take a look at those a little bit more and, 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 and what it is that, the you know, sort of the makeup of the community to, to know what's best to apply. But at the property level, I think we, we in Canada continue to talk about uh, the key, uh, both basic and slightly more complicated steps at the lot level uh, for flood mitigation and prevention. Uh, and so we're still talking about backwater valves and installing sump pumps and doing very, very basic measures on the property, which Canadians uh, are still having a difficult time doing. So, I mean, I'll refer to our survey once again, if that's all right, <laughs> because Absolutely. we did ask a question, but we did ask a question about this, you know, what, you know, what, what about all these steps are you doing uh, in your prop on your property, excuse me, to reduce your risks? And, more than half are still not doing things that, that are almost costless, like elevating valuables uh, to either a higher level or or, um, or, or elevating within the, the same level, elevating their appliances. They're not doing things like that. They, they're not they're not even aware of um, at a great and in, in any significant way what their insurance policies cover. So most Canadians that we talked to didn't know whether they were even covered for. Um, water damage that was relevant for their neighborhood. So whether they had overland flooding or, or um, any other types of water coverage, such as sewer backup. So that, that, I mean, that's a problem. I think I'd like to think that we're a lot farther than we are in Canada, but we're not. I think we're still really struggling with some of these very basic um, measures. Uh, and, and the fact is people, you know, I, people do not know where to go for this information. They're not informing themselves. They're not informing themselves of their risk. So uh, as a result, the connection is they don't, they don't take the necessary steps. They're not exploring what potential options are available to them in their home, unless they're forced to in, in the case of a, a significant flood. Um, there, there, there is some uh, interesting, I think, I think that there's some really useful approaches available now um, and that continue to evolve and be, are more available, you know, more broadly in the country, such as, um, you know, dams that, that can inflate um, very quickly to protect areas, to protect neighborhoods. Um, uh, so I'm sure you've both seen some of these around and there, there are you know, various options. So I think these are, there are, you know, there are more uh, timely and more responsive approaches that uh, uh, certainly are, are coming available on the market. And then we see municipalities using across the country. Um, to, to um, help mitigate in a, in a sort of an imminent flood situation. But at the property level, I think we're, we're still really struggling. 
to uh, to teach people about the fact that they need to manage the water on their property. So, um, so I, I'll I'll just say that it, you know on the awareness piece because this is a really big one. I think people 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 here in Canada, um, you know, and this some of this has to do with our maps and the quality of our maps, but people are not. Uh, looking at maps to, to, to learn about their um, what kind of risks um, what kind of risks their home faces and when. So in our survey, we discussed uh, and asked about flood maps, and we found that the majority of people, over eighty percent, had not looked at a flood map for the community, and they were less likely to look at flood maps if they had um, less education. So those with professional degrees and graduate degrees. Were more likely to look at maps and to, to inform themselves about risk. They knew about the maps, they knew where to find them. Uh, and, and those living in their home uh, uh, for longer were more likely, and that is a think of, and that was significant. I think it was like a 20 year period, were more likely to take a look at a map to, 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 to educate themselves. Uh, and we can talk about maps later if you want, but I'll just leave it there and give Brent a chance to respond. <laughs> well, I do want to ask one question, one clarifying question. The, the survey, was it of people in places you perceive to be floodplains, or is it a more general survey? Uh, no, we targeted people living in uh, designated flood risk areas here in Canada. And, and had they experienced in the past five years, or had there been flooding in the past five years for these areas um, before the survey? Yes, I think, I, I believe it was one in five or so had experienced flooding um, within the last, I think, 10 years, we asked them. Wow, so, so to be clear, People living in floodplains that are no that are communicated they're living in floodplains who have experienced in many cases experienced flooding still aren't doing basic things like raising their appliances or lifting their valuables up which are dirt cheap. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is remarkable. It's discouraging. It's, it's <laughs> discouraging. What was further discouraging, and I, I apologize if I made this point already, but um, the aware like when we we asked these people, so they lived in designated flood risk areas. We asked this question in 2016, and we asked it again. So we asked them if they if they are living in a designated flood risk area, and only six percent of those that we surveyed said that they were. So that's troublesome, and that that result has not changed since 2016. There was no movement. We were at six percent in 2016, and we remain at six percent in 2020. They they were living in a designated flood floodplain, and 94 percent of people didn't know it. That's right. Wow, I I thought that. Um, so interesting enough, I spent some time, I've, I've lived all over the world. Uh, one of the places I lived for a few months doing an engagement was uh, in Florida. And that's when I discovered that Florida real estate is a blood sport. Um, uh, they don't actually have requirements to inform anybody of virtually any pre-existing concerns with a home. You have to kind of get an engineer and you have to do ask all the questions yourself. It, it, even if they get, even if floods in clear sky flooding five times a year, it doesn't have to be uh, revealed. Um, but I thought in Canada, <laughs> we had better communication about those things. I guess I was wrong. Um, I, I will also add one thing. Um, for, for those listening, Canada, in case you didn't know, is a huge country. And we get pretty much every climate risk going. And most of them we're experiencing um, at the same or faster rates than most other countries in the world. You know, we, we're we go all the way to the, almost all the way to the North Pole. Uh, Santa Claus is Canadian, in case anybody was wondering. Um, you know, we have uh, desert areas. We have slope areas that have been destabilized and flooded due to excess precipitation. We have riverine flooding, which is a strong area of research for Brent and Anna. 
um, we have in the Great Lakes, those inland freshwater seas, well, they're all uh, overflowing their banks many times. We're seeing retreat from the banks of the Great Lakes. Now we're seeing the wildfires, especially out west where I live, um, causing massive devastation. And of course, we have massive coastlines. And then in the far north, we have permafrost and accelerated warming. So, you know, a lot of the research in terms of what the heck's really going to happen to places um, is actually occurring in Canada, which is, for better or for worse, um, good for Brent and Anna, and not necessarily so good for our, our residents. Um, so that's just kind of the pitch for why Canada matters when we talk about how to deal with the impacts of climate change. Um, but let's go back to some of these interesting things. You, you talked about the floating, um, the, the homes that float. I, I have a little bit of game on this one, which is that I played Texas Hold'em in New Orleans um, prior to Katrina. Oh, yes. And, and the reason that's um, relevant is that the casino is actually on a barge in the lake. And it's actually floats because they're not allowed to have gambling establishments on land. But it is a permanent establishment that's on the water. <laughs> and it never goes anywhere. And secondarily, of course, I live in uh, Vancouver, you know, a few minutes from Vancouver's Harbor. And there are all sorts of little boats, uh, houseboats, where people live on and off um, throughout the year. So floating uh, accommodations, maybe talk a little bit about that. Because that's an interesting technical hack for places which are going to experience significant variance in water levels um, and don't necessarily want to leave. Sure, I can, I can jump in there. And the Louisiana connection that you mentioned is perfect. Um, so uh, we um, at the University of Waterloo have been involved in what's called amphibious architecture or amphibious housing. And it's exactly what you said. It's um, homes that normally rest on the ground during normal conditions, non-flood conditions, but they have buoyancy elements and they've been engineered to um, basically float as the flood waters become deeper and deeper. It rises to the level of the buoyancy that's built into the house and then the house begins to operate almost like a houseboat. Um, and there's some guideposts, of course, to make sure your $300,000 amphibious house doesn't float away in the flood. Um, but that's, uh, that's an ongoing area of research, and there are now more and more examples of that in Canada and, and around the world. Um, that's been, in, in most cases, these are pilot projects at this, at this stage, but there are examples in the UK, um, examples in the Netherlands, examples in Canada, ex and uh, examples in Vietnam, where amphibious homes are, are now a reality. Um, but that's just one form of, of elevating homes above floodplains. Uh, there's also what's called static elevation, which is basically adding a, a fixed element to a house such as a, uh, a series of stilts or adding another foundation level, or in some cases building an earthen mound and then lifting the house on top of that earthen mound and permanently creating a higher elevation house. Um, so that's been attempted all over the place. Um, the amphibious architecture, uh, coming back just a little bit to the Louisiana connection, uh, that's been practiced in the Mississippi Delta of Louisiana for 50, 60 years, um, where residents in, in fishing camps and in uh, temporary homes were being flooded out on the Mississippi Delta on a regular basis. So they just started 
adding some buoyancy to their house and some guideposts um, to make sure the house didn't float away. So that's where this amphibious architecture idea originated and it's now been modernized and uh, made a little more rigorous for um, building codes, for example. Other forms of accommodation, we've been talking about um, flood proofing. Um, so Anna mentioned, you know, basic level flood, um, flood proofing like backwater valves and sump pumps. Um, and, you know, you can add coatings and membranes and temporary walls around your house to basically allow your house to function in a floodplain and during flood conditions without being flooded. Uh, so there's a lot of possibility there. As Anna mentioned, you can raise up vulnerable items from the lowest levels of basements. You can relocate your furnace and your water heater to the main floor or, or higher. And so there's a lot of things that, that homeowners can do, but I, th I think it comes back to this issue of awareness that Anna mentioned uh, that, that you know, we've been talking about. So I think once homeowners know what's available and you know, crucially, what the cost of that is, then they can make some some um, educated choices. Yeah, it's challenging to make the educated choices because, you know, Brent, you know how much I was leaning into people being irrational, ignoring stuff, um, you know, not being good decision makers, uh, homo economicus being a, you know, a fallacy of classical economics. Um, but it's getting more challenging. And Anna's point about not even being aware that there were risks is deeply pertinent here. If, if there's no movement on the dial on really basic stuff like floodplain risk in designated floodplains, uh, how can there be a movement on the dial on things like um, slope slippage, on permafrost, uh, thaw, on uh, seashore sea sea level rise and on uh, wildfire risks. Right. It, it just starts to overwhelm individuals. Um, and this gets back to the question of, you know, the, you know we, we, we talked a little bit earlier about the United States thousand odd programs for buyouts. And, and Anna, maybe you can lean into this, but the observation I make about the United States is that FEMA's plan is piecemeal. It's not community oriented. It doesn't help an entire group of people move as is being done in some of the communities in Canada where there's a plan and, you know, governmental organizations are saying, these are the areas where people go and, you know, there's, here's where you move to, but it's more just an individual owner is expected to apply. So Anna, did you, did you survey that need for, you know, a, a governmental program versus individuals trying to sort it out? Uh, no, we didn't, but, um, you know, on, on we didn't we didn't ask them that. We t we talked to them about sort of like under what conditions they would they would accept a buyout. Uh, and uh, the the one of you know we lo we looked at coerciveness, and so most of most of the respondents, I think it was we were about we were over half, probably about over sixty percent, had indicated that this has to be a voluntary move for people. They they didn't they didn't. That, that they wouldn't receive well a mandatory buyout, of course. Um, so, I mean, it certainly presents the challenge that, you know, governments uh, in Canada and I think in the U.S. are experiencing around, um, you, know, what are, you know, ensuring that the drivers are there to, to get people to take action. But I think there, there's a thread of, I think, a common thread among these issues, and that is that, you know, there, there's a there's a lack of understanding really on, on the part of home owners around buyouts, I think, and 
what is involved in a buyout. Um, what the, the primary motivator for people in our survey um, that they've said uh, would be a, a if to, in order to accept a buyout would be the financial implications. I mean, the, the, the place-based attachment that, that you've probably discussed in previous podcasts and that you've probably read about elsewhere is important, but I, um, you know, based on our survey, the finances are, are even more important. So in terms of the reasons for moving, it would be, be the financial. So people would want to ensure that they're um, compensated fairly. And usually what comp that means is pre-market, excuse me, pre-flood market value for the home. And that isn't always the case. It's, these programs are, are, are oftentimes put together ad hoc and uh, in a very reactive way as opposed to being really well planned out in advance. Uh, and what that could look like is communities um, planning ahead of time through climate change adaptation plans or, and, and other types of planning um, around where, where the vulnerable spots are, where, where you know, should resources become available, how can they plan in order to move um, homes away from a flood area or away from a flood risk so so that's really important i think but um but brent i don't know if you want to add a little bit to that i know you've done some work on this as well sure um so i guess the what i would mention to that is um i, I think we have to um think about buyouts in a broader perspective um right now we're thinking about buyouts in a very binary fashion where you're either in your house in the floodplain or you've been bought out and you're leaving or you're, you've already left. But there's some pretty innovative programs in Australia and New Zealand where uh, local authorities have negotiated a leaseback arrangement with homeowners um, who are in floodplains. And so once they accept a buyout, um, they have the rights to lease that property on a continuous basis for you know, X number of years, maybe 10 years or 20 years. Um, so they actually accept their buyout money up front and then they pay a small amount per year for, to, for the right to stay in that property until flood risks get to the level where it's obvious that they have to abandon that property. So I think um, looking at a broader range of buyout plans would, would really benefit um, implementation. If, for example, um, cottagers on the shores of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie, if, if they knew they could accept a buyout now when their front yard is being eroded in the winter, but still stay in that property for the next 10 years until things get, you know, really too, too bad, then I think that would be more acceptable to those homeowners. Yeah, it, it's interesting from a uh, couple of things I'd like to draw on just there from the site, you know, the... Um, First off, if, if buyers don't even know their risk, which is one of the things that Anna's um, survey, Anna and her team survey found, then they're not going to be thinking about planned retreat and buyouts except in um, the value of the real estate perspective. As, as you and I discovered, or let me rephrase that, as I discovered in, a, in the course of our work with natural resources, place attachment applies to only a subset of people in places at risk. Um, some people are like the, acquaint, the person I spoke to who bought my windsurfing gear and lives in Crescent Beach in you know, Surrey, who's in that exact high profile area for consideration for planned retreat. He's a well-off guy who moved in there a few years ago and if they give him money, he'll go somewhere else. You know, he, he has no attachment to the place except that he likes it. 
and there's a lot of summer cottagers and you know people from away who have places in right nice waterfront places in the Maritimes and others who aren't attached to the places. But the secondary point to get to, it's the psychology of what they think the market value of their home is, is really actually really deep. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,